Take your Bibles and turn them with me to Genesis chapter 32. Genesis 32. Let go and let God. Popular phrase. You've probably heard it before. You've probably said it before. I know I have. I'm sure often the saying comes from good intentions as a, as a way of expressing trust in God. The problem is that that phrase can encourage a very passive kind of attitude. Don't do anything. Don't be intentional. Just kind of take your hands off the wheel. Just close your eyes and you just kind of float through life and somehow just things will work out. Well, say whatever you will about the patriarch Jacob, he was anything but passive. Jacob's whole life was defined by struggle, by fighting, by wrestling. His name means deceiver. It means heel catcher. God chose Jacob for the purpose of blessing him and giving him preeminence in the family. Through Jacob, God's redemptive purposes for the world would move forward. But Jacob always lived as though he himself, through his own strength, must win the blessing for himself. Even in the womb, he's fighting and he's wrestling with his brother Esau for supremacy, clutching Esau's heel as if he's trying to pull his brother down so that he could be the favored firstborn instead. Years later, He outwits Esau by exploiting his impulsive brother's hunger, and he buys Esau's birthright in exchange for a hot, steaming bowl of red stuff. Later on, he tricks his father Isaac into giving him the firstborn blessing instead of of Esau, and when Esau threatens to get revenge by killing him, Jacob flees Canaan, he flees the land of promise to save his life. And he ends up in Padan Aram, 500 miles away, in the service of his conniving uncle Laban. And there's this ongoing struggle between these two schemers, and it seems like Laban has the upper hand, manipulating and controlling Jacob. And yet in the end, after a 20-year struggle, Jacob prevails, and he emerges victorious and vindicated. At the call of God, Jacob now is heading back to the promised land to claim his inheritance and his blessing. And, and as he reaches the outskirts of Canaan, he knows that before he goes home, he must first confront his brother Esau. He must do the thing that he's been dreading to do for 20 years. And he sends messengers to inform Esau of his impending arrival, and the messengers return with an ominous message. Esau is coming to meet you with 400 men. And Jacob is sent into a tailspin of anxiety and fear, terrified of impending doom, terrified of Esau and his men coming upon him and his family and all of his servants and wiping everyone out. And at this point now, we are approaching the climax of Jacob's story. It's going to be Jacob's pinnacle moment, his finest hour, the moment that will change Jacob's life forever. And it doesn't happen through his scheming and conniving activity, but neither does it happen through a passive let go and let God kind of attitude. What we're about to read is anything but passivity. Instead, Jacob's finest moment will come through intense activity, powerful prayer, and most importantly, through an all-night struggle of toil, sweat, and tears where Jacob does not let go, he instead hangs on. In this moment, 
there are great lessons for the people of God that I hope will, like they did with Jacob, remain with us for the rest of our lives. So let's dive in. Please stand with me now out of honor and reverence for the reading of the precious and perfect words of our God. We are in Genesis chapter 32. We're going to start at verse 9 and read on down through the end of the chapter. Moses writes under the inspiration of the Spirit, And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I've become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good, and make your offspring as the sands of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels in their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me, and put a space between drove and drove. And he instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. The same night he arose and took his two wives and his two female servants and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore to this day the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Let's pray. Father, as we come now to one of the most mysterious parts of the entire book of Genesis, I pray that you would help this preacher to handle your word rightly. I am 
weak and I am nothing. I just want to be a vessel of your truth. So please help me and help us this morning. Help the congregation to have ears to hear your word and to be blessed by your word richly and to learn what you have for us this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Christians are not fatalists. At least they're not supposed to be fatalists. Que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. We're not to passively let go and let God. Instead, there are three things that we see with Jacob that are instructive for the people of God as we navigate the trials and challenges of our own life. And the first thing that we see is that Jacob prays to the God who acts on behalf of his people when they call. Now, we've already talked some about Jacob's magnificent prayer last week, but I I do want to just briefly circle back around to it again, because probably uh, one of the biggest manifestations of passive Christianity is a failure of so many Christians to pray. Uh, Sometimes people, uh, uh, yes, even Christians, have, have an attitude that prayer isn't very helpful. Now, we may never say that, but we don't have to. All we have to do is look at how we've spent our day. Our schedule, schedule and our routines betray the fact that prayer is not a priority as we just kind of go about through the motions of the day. And we become passive about prayer because for some of us deep down, we really don't believe that prayer will make a difference. Now, contrary to that notion, James chapter 5 says that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And Jacob, in turning to prayer, is reminding us that as we navigate the trials and challenges and fears of our lives, one of the most important activities that we can and should do is to be engaged in fervent and vigorous prayer. And that's exactly what Jacob does. And we see in verse 11, deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. Jacob in his prayer is pleading with God, to move, to do something. This is, this is not a fatalistic and passive attitude, but an expression of a belief that there are certain things in the universe that will not happen unless you get on your knees and plead with God to make them happen. I wonder if you believe that about prayer. Let me, let me say that again. There are things in the universe that will not happen unless you pray for them to happen. That statement may rattle some of you, may really push some of you who are really big on the sovereignty of God, and you should be big on the sovereignty of God because the Bible is really big on it. Our God is in the heavens, the psalmist says, he does whatever he pleases. Or one of my favorite verses on on God's sovereignty is Proverbs 16.33, right up here. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Every flip of the coin and every dice roll in every casino in the world is governed by the Lord. And so someone's pushback then will be, well, oh, in that case, it seems like fatalism is true. So what's the point of praying if God is in control? And yet the same Bible that says that God decides the outcome of the cast lot also says you do not have because you do not ask. Or in other words, you do not have because you do not pray, which means that you would have 
if you did, but you won't, so you don't. <laughs> and and there, there are many people that are missing out on seeing the Lord move in a mighty way simply because they will not seek God in prayer. Uh, now, the Bible never has us respond to God's sovereignty with a fatalistic, passive attitude. On the contrary, as opposed to squelching the reason for prayer, God's sovereignty becomes the very basis of it. If God is indeed a God who does whatever he pleases, then folks, there is no better person in the universe to make your request to than him. And as Jacob prays to the Lord, there is an expectation that God will move and God will bring deliverance in response to his plea. That's why right after he states his fear in verse 11, that his fear that Esau would come and destroy them, right after that, he says in verse 12, but you said, I will surely do you good. He expresses confidence that God will respond to his plea for help as David does. Uh, When he writes in Psalm 34, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears. Bible's constantly encouraging us and urging us to go to the Lord with our neediness, and constantly we're told uh, to actually expect that God will respond and give us help in times of need. And so the psalmist says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Jacob believed this, which is why after praying, Jacob doesn't just sit paralyzed in gloom and doom. Instead, and this is my second point, Jacob plans and acts in a way that is wise and God-honoring. Jacob plans and acts in a way that is wise and God-honoring. Jacob launches into this elaborate strategy of how to engage with Esau. Now, a passive uh, let-go-and-let-God approach might suggest, well, why do that? Why do that? You, you prayed And so now, you just need to just sit back and watch God work. You don't need to do anything else. In fact, if you really have faith, you shouldn't have to do anything else. That's not true. So while in verses 9 through 12, Jacob prays, in verses 13 through 21, he plans. He prays, then he plans. He prays, then he plans. The two are not mutually exclusive. John Calvin, writing on this, says that in endeavoring to appease his brother by presence, he Jacob does not act distrustfully as if he doubted. Calvin goes on to say that Jacob believed that God would show him favor, and yet at the same time, he did not omit the use of the means which were in his power. For though by prayer we cast our cares upon God, yet the security ought not to render us lazy. For the Lord will have all the aids which he affords us applied to use. I think Calvin is right. And there's other biblical examples of this. For example, in Joshua 8, God promises Joshua that he will give Israel victory over the city of Ai. And yet immediately after that, what do we find Joshua doing? Just kind of letting go and letting God? No. Keep keep reading the chapter, and you'll find Joshua making an elaborate military plan to ambush and surprise his opponents. Or or think about um, Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 9, where God's people are rebuilding the ruined city wall of Jerusalem, and they are surrounded by their enemies. What do they do? Do they pray? Absolutely. But that's not all. Nehemiah writes, and we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. That doesn't mean that they didn't trust God. You pray, but you don't presume. You, you pray, but you still have a responsibility to walk in wisdom. I'm reminded of what Oliver Cromwell told his troops, trust in God and keep your powder dry. 
Trust in God and keep your powder dry. So yes, you do pray, and then after that, you walk with godly wisdom in whatever situation that God's called you to be in. And so in, in verses 13 through 15, Jacob sends gifts to his brother. If you do the math, it's 550 animals. Now that doesn't mean anything to you because we don't, we don't in our culture, traffic wealth in that way. But that's a massive amount of wealth. It's, it's fitting tribute for a king, really. Uh, and, and while Esau may not have the title of king, he is a powerful ruler and a tribal chieftain. In verses 16 through 20, we see that Jacob wants the gifts divided up and, and to come to Esau and wave after wave after wave. And after each wave, the messengers are to tell Esau that your servant Jacob is coming behind them. Now, if some have criticized Jacob's plans as lacking faith, others have accused him of being just the same old Jacob. Here's Jacob again, just coming up with another scheme to manipulate Esau. I don't think that's the case here. I do think Jacob is being shrewd. Shrewdness is Jacob's forte, after all. But I don't think he's being sinfully manipulative here. I think he's walking in wisdom. Jacob fears the wrath of Esau, and, and, and I think of verses like Proverbs 15.1 that say, a soft answer turns away wrath. Or I think of scriptures that speak of wise and careful engagement with those in power, like Proverbs 25.15, with patience a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue will break a bone. Or Proverbs 16, 14, a king's wrath is a messenger of death, and a wise man will appease it. Or Ecclesiastes 10, 4, if the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. I think what Jacob is doing here is he's showing great deference and respect and honor to Esau in the spirit of these wise Proverbs. But Jacob is doing more here than just putting together a plan to appease his brother and calm him down. Jacob is offering to part with wealth on a massive scale. In fact, it kind of seems over the top until you realize that Jacob actually stole something from Esau. He stole the birthright. He stole the blessing. Yes, God was going to give it to him anyway, but that's beside the point. Jacob is a thief. And the pouring out of these gifts is a way of saying, I stole your blessing and now I'm giving it back to you. You see, true biblical repentance isn't just saying you're sorry. <clears throat> it, it actually manifests itself in a desire to try to make things right with the offended through restitution. Now that's not always possible. Sometimes there's nothing you can do to totally make up for and repair the wrong that's done but the humble and repentant heart will try. And that's a sign that your soul has been gripped by the grace of God. Do you remember Zacchaeus in the New Testament? You know the song, right? Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. Climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And as Zacchaeus sat in that tree listening to Jesus... His soul was gripped by God. He believed in Jesus, and he was changed. And it wasn't just that he felt sorry for his sins, but he felt that this compulsion to do something about it. And, and so in Luke chapter 19, he tells Jesus, if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will return it fourfold. And then Jesus says to him, today salvation has come to this house. In other words, Zacchaeus' impulse to make restitution is a sign that his heart had been changed. 
that he recognized and despised the wickedness of his own sin. And so instead of loving himself, which was his old way of living, God was changing him to love others and to bless those he had hurt. You have not truly repented if you remain callous towards those you have hurt and those you have stolen from. The truly repentant person desires to repair the damage that they've done. That's not always possible, depending on the circumstance. But the heart to do that is present in the repentant person. And that's what Jacob is doing. Jacob, <clears throat> Jacob the grabber is now Jacob the giver. Jacob, the one who stole the blessing now becomes the giver of blessing, and in that way he foreshadows his destiny to be the head of a nation that will one day bless the world. Jacob's motivation is further expressed in verse 20, where he says, afterward I shall see his face, perhaps he will accept me. You see, Jacob wants much more than escaping Esau's sword. Yes, he doesn't want to be killed, we know that, but he he wants much more than that. He says, perhaps he will accept me. That can be translated, and I think it is in the CSB Bible, perhaps he will forgive me. Jacob wants to acknowledge his sin to Esau and be forgiven. He wants reconciliation. Uh, Literally, the Hebrew says, perhaps he will lift up my face, which gives the picture of a man whose face is is downcast, whose, whose head hangs low in humiliation and shame. And then the other party gently lifts up his face, signaling signaling reconciliation and forgiveness. As opposed to letting go and letting God, Jacob is doing everything in his power to make things right. He's doing what the Apostle Paul urges Christians to do. He says in Romans 12, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So Jacob prays to the God who acts on behalf of his people when they call. Jacob plans and acts in the way that is wise and God-honoring, And then, thirdly, Jacob prevails through God's all-sufficient grace and weakness. And this is what I've been waiting to get to for weeks. Verse 22. Same night, he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children. And he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. Why? Why? Why does, why does Jacob decide to be alone at this point? It, it, there's a lot of speculation on that. Uh, is it for more prayer? Is it, is it because he's Esau's prime target and he seeks to draw his angry brother away from his family? We don't know for sure. What we do know is that God in his providence has now separated Jacob from his wealth, his servants, his wives, his children, He separated him from everything, and he doesn't know if he's going to see any of these things again. Jacob is, in a sense, stripped of everything, and and he's back to exactly where he was 20 years ago with nothing but a walking stick to his name. Anything that Jacob might depend on is gone. And as the night closes in on Jacob, the, the imminent confrontation with Esau becomes more and more real. The darkness must have felt oppressive. Remember, there's no artificial light back then. No street lights, no cell phones. Nothing. You got the sound of the the wild beast in the distance. This moment was much worse for him than when he first set out from Canaan on his own 20 years ago. Because this time he knows for sure that Esau is coming for him. And I can imagine suddenly Jacob hearing something in the bushes. And he knows somebody is out there. 
And he gets that creepy feeling that we all get when we feel like we are being watched, but we can't see who it is. And suddenly, out of nowhere, Jacob is assaulted. He's attacked. Text says a man wrestled with him all night. But who is it? It's dark. The attacker's face can't be seen. And, and the things could, have, uh, things could have perhaps gone through Jacob's mind is perhaps it's Isaac, his own father. Jacob had never been accepted by his father. Isaac always loved Esau more, and he wanted to give Esau the blessing, but Jacob deceived his own father and stole it. And so maybe it's Isaac that this old man has come to deal with his son to punish him for everything that he had done. A better candidate for the attacker would be Laban. Jacob had contended with Laban for years. Laban was an enemy. Laban had threatened to hurt Jacob and his family. And despite the non-aggression pact that they had sealed, maybe Laban's changed his mind. He was never trustworthy anyway. And maybe Jacob's fear of Laban coming back to take his wives from him by force is finally coming true. But the most likely candidate is, of course, Esau. Jacob thought anyone in particular was attacking him. Esau would have been at the top of the suspect list. Esau, the one that he feared more than his father, the one that he feared more than Laban. Esau was a skilled hunter. Perhaps Esau had tracked him down in the night and found him at last and will now fulfill that promise he made 20 years ago that I will kill my brother Jacob. And so begins an all-night battle. It's hard to even imagine the physical exertion this would have taken. To wrestle for five minutes is exhausting, let alone for five hours or more. But... But let's remember something about Jacob. Jacob is a strong and powerful man, isn't he? Remember back in chapter 29 at the well and that that huge stone covered the mouth of the well? It was so big that it required two or three guys just to move it. And if you remember, Jacob showing off for Rachel moves that thing by himself. Rabbinic tradition says that Jacob was a giant of a man. Man for man, Jacob is a match for anyone. By hook or by crook, he has bested and outwitted every opponent. Constantly he prevails. Through his own cunning, he prevailed against Esau long ago. He prevailed against his father Isaac. He prevailed against Laban. Jacob always seems to prevail. He always seems to be in control. He always seems to be winning. And it seems like that's going to be the case again. Because this man who attacks him is not prevailing against Jacob. Could it be that this attacker will lose? But then, in verse 25, we're told that when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled him. And all of a sudden, it becomes clear that despite the efforts of the night, Jacob is no match for his assailants. All along, Jacob's attacker has been holding back. He's been condescending himself to Jacob's level, but all it takes is just a split second for us to realize who really is the strongest and who is really in charge. All he does is touch Jacob's hip. The Hebrew says tap. 
just, just one little tap, and it's dislocated. Jacob is completely out of commission. He's no match for this person. He never was. In fact, this person could disintegrate Jacob in an instant. The attacker takes out his hip. Now, wrestling is all about, is all about using the torso and your weight. And when the socket is out, your strength to wrestle is gone. This person completely takes out the place where Jacob is the strongest. The thing that he takes Jacob out, the thing that enabled Jacob to keep fighting and prevailing. And you can only imagine the, the shock waves of pain that racked through Jacob's body. The ear-splitting scream of agony that, that pierced the night as that hip is knocked out of joint, followed by the sheer emotional shock and fear that would have seized Jacob as now, in this moment, all of his strength is gone, and Jacob finds himself weaker than he has ever been. And if he had not realized who his attacker was by now, that little touch, that slight tap, that totally incapacitated him, that would have told Jacob all that he needed to know. It's not Isaac. It's not, it's not Laban. It's not Esau. What's more, and, and this is very important, it never has been them. All of his life, Jacob has been striving and wrestling against others whom he believed were the problem. But what is happening in this dark night is a living parable to something that has been true all along. Jacob's biggest fight, Jacob's biggest struggle, the battle of his life since his earliest days until now has always been his fight with God. It was his battle it was, it was a battle for supremacy. Who's in control? Who's in charge? Jacob or God? And how would the blessing come? And by whom? This was the battle of Jacob's whole life. Seen in a microcosm in this titanic struggle in the night at the river Jabbok. He has been fighting and wrestling with God from the very beginning, all of his life. But now, but now Jacob is at his weakest point ever. He has zero control, zero strength, zero ability to win this fight. No physical power, no clever schemes, no plotting machinations can serve him here, which means that Jacob is finally, finally in the position where he's needed to be in all along, which is the position where you and I need to be. You see, brothers and sisters, we tend to think that what we need to be in is a position of strength, a position of health, a position of power and vitality, a position rooted in our competence and in our ability. That's what I think I need. How about you? But, but God comes along and puts Jacob in a position of extreme weakness. Friends, this is not the God of liberal theology, the cosmic Santa Claus, the, the tame, doting, spoiling grandfather who gives you everything you want and it's all rainbows and unicorns. 
But this is also not the God of many conservative churches that, that have the idea that you just obey God, you punch in the right formula, and you get the kind of life you think you, sh- you should have like a cosmic ATM machine. Jacob in this chapter has been obeying God, and God responds by crippling him. Does your theology have room for that kind of God? A God that cripples on purpose? But God is is doing this not out of cruelty towards Jacob, but because he loves him. There's something that only in his extreme weakness that Jacob can learn and experience. Because in his weakness, Jacob now begins a new kind of struggle, and this time, it's the right kind of struggle. As Jacob realizes that if he cannot win by strength, he would prevail in weakness. And now, now Jacob is on the right track. As his his eyes are being opened to one of the biggest secrets, one of the biggest lessons for any who would walk with God. He must prevail in weakness. And the only way to prevail in weakness is to abandon all hope in self and rely exclusively on God's grace. Hosea 12.4 reflects back on this long night of struggle and Hosea says that Jacob strove with the angel, and right there, angel is, is referring to, to, to God, the manifestation of God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept, he wept and sought his favor. Some, sometime during this struggle, Jacob, Jacob figures out who it is that he is actually engaged with. I know later on he asked him, what is your name? And, but, the, but then the, the man says, why do you ask my name? In other words, don't you know who I am? Jacob knows. Jacob knows. And he's weeping. And he's seeking his favor. And why is Jacob weeping? It's not just because he is in physical pain. But because in his weakness, Jacob for the first time is now beginning to realize what his real need is. His real need. It's not getting on Isaac's good side. It's not getting out from under the thumb of Laban. It's not even escaping the threat of his brother Esau. Jacob started this chapter fearing Esau. The fear of Esau was at the center of his heart. But now Jacob is learning whom and what he should really fear. The most terrifying thing in the world is not having a murderous brother hunting you down for revenge. It's not the most terrifying thing in the world. Brothers and sisters, the most terrifying thing in your world is not financial ruin or being rejected by others, or a health crisis, or not being married, or you fill in the blank of that thing that you are afraid of right now. And whatever it is, that is not the most terrifying thing in the world. The most terrifying thing in the world is to not have God. To to not have his blessing and his favor in your life, which means then that the very best thing in the world is to have God and to have his blessing and his favor. But here's the rub. You cannot earn it or achieve it on your own. And Jacob's soul is awakening to that reality. In verse 26, Jacob's opponent says, let me go for the day has broken. Now, why does he say this? It's not entirely clear, but but I think there is a hint in verse 30 when Jacob later on marvels at this encounter and says, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. In other words, there's this expectation that seeing God 
God's face. Seeing God face to face is a dangerous thing. Indeed, later on, God says to Moses, no man shall see my face and live. And so as the dawn approaches and and Jacob's divine opponent becomes less shrouded in darkness and the light is coming, the danger actually increases for Jacob. And yet even with the threat of death, Jacob stubbornly hangs on. He says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Friends, this is not let go and let God. (laughs) There's nothing passive here. Jacob is aggressively and passionately clinging to God with all that he has, even in his weakness he is doing it. He is weeping and he is pleading in desperation because the thought of, of him leaving Jacob terrifies Jacob. I must go, the man says. You can't see my face. If you keep hanging on, you will die. But Jacob says, I won't go unless you bless me. Better to die clinging to God than to let go and live apart from him. And Jacob here is much like Job who said, though he slay me, I will hope in him. This is the point of desperation where God wants to bring all of his people to. This relentless desperation for God. But, but how does Jacob get to that point? He has to get to that point through a crippling, through weakness. That was the only thing that could wake Jacob up to the reality that what he needed the most was not his own strength, his own self-sufficient cleverness, his own ability to get himself out of situations, his own power. Jacob has no power. All he can do is desperately hold on for dear life and cling to the only one who can bless him. And and he doesn't care if he dies in the process. And in that he realizes what David would later confess in Psalm 63, 3, that your steadfast love is better than life. Jacob discovers the most important thing that anyone could discover, that the center of God's blessing is not offspring, It's not wealth, it's not the promised land. Jacob already had those things, and yet he still begs for blessing as he desperately clings to God. Don't leave me, God, don't leave me, God. And and, and in in that pleading, what is he confessing in that moment? He is confessing that the center of God's blessing is God. It's God himself. He is the blessing. You can have offspring, and you can have land, and you can have wealth, and you can have health, and you can have prestige, and you can have popularity, and you can enjoy an American suburban lifestyle. But if you do not have God, and if you do not have his favor, and if you do not have his friendship, if you do not have that, then you are the most destitute of people. Jacob's realizing something of this truth. And he is realizing The blessing found in God will not be achieved through his strength, but is experienced in weakness as he relies on the grace of God through faith in God. It's not that Jacob was not a believer, but he still was clueless about how much he sinfully relied on self and how much he really needed God and how God was not to be a means to an end, but that God himself was to be the end and the chief and most precious of all blessings. And that if you truly have him, you really do have all you need. What good is offspring 
What good is the promised land? What's, good, what's, what's the good of going to heaven if, if you don't have God, if God's not there? Sufficiency is not found in self or in any other thing you may wrestle and grasp for. Sufficiency is found in Him. And when God gets us to that place, even if He has to cripple us to get us there, when, when, when we are in that needy and desperate position, aha, then God can move in our hearts in big and powerful ways as He does now with Jacob. Look at verse 27. He says to him, what is your name? Huh. Whenever God asks someone a question in the Bible, pay very close attention. God never asks questions to find out something that he doesn't already know. God knows everything. When God asks a question, it's not for his sake, but it is for the person that he is questioning. He says, what is your name? Now remember, remember that names in the Bible, especially in Genesis, are, are often connected to a person's character and identity. God says, what is your name? And he says, Jacob. Brothers and sisters, what you have right there is a confession. God's question is forcing Jacob to fully own up to his devious past. And when Jacob responds, it's an admission of guilt. I am Jacob. I am heel grabber. I am deceiver. I am cheater. And then look at verse 28. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob. And by the way, in, in the Bible, and again, especially in Genesis, to change somebody's name, that is a sign that that person has authority. This person has authority to change this person's name. He says, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. The man's able to change Jacob's name because he has the authority to do so. And the change of name signifies, it points to a a change of direction, a change of character. You are no longer to be the heel grabber. You're no longer to be the deceiver. You're no longer to be the cheater. I'm changing you and I'm transforming you into a man that will prevail, but not through cheating and deceiving and through your own strength and machinations, trusting in yourself. You will prevail and be everything that you are meant to be through weakness as you depend on my grace through faith as you have done this night. Ed Clowney writes that faith wins when it knows that all is lost and clings to God alone. In God's dealings with Jacob, we really have a picture of how God will ultimately bless the entire world. To bless Jacob, God first condescended himself by coming to him on Jacob's level. Indeed, God appeared as weak. For a time, it appeared that that Jacob was actually doing well, that perhaps even God had lost But actually, as we know, God was in control the whole time. And through his weakness, his power is actually seen as greater than Jacob's. And he blesses Jacob. Likewise, Jesus condescended himself. He was God, but he became a man. And in a position of weakness, was crucified by his enemies. It appeared that he had lost And in that weakness, as he is hanging there, bruised and bloodied and and suffering, he's accomplishing victory. He's winning the battle. 
through what looks like weakness, he wins. And in that, he shows himself to be infinitely strong because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And through God's great act of condescension would come blessing because any who would, like Jacob, abandon all hope in themselves, all hope in their own righteousness and strength, and in humble weakness cling to God and His promises and the gospel, pleading with Him for favor and mercy, everyone who does that will find that every sin they have ever committed, every sin that they were condemned for, has now been wiped clean and forgiven, and they will receive the blessing the blessing of eternal life. And, and, and Jesus says in John 17 that eternal life is knowing Him. That's the blessing. Eternal life is not merely living forever. It's knowing Him. The blessing is knowing Him. Not, not a new car, not financial gain, not health, not a comfortable life in this world, but knowing Him and receiving His grace and favor. He's at the center of blessing. Verse 31 says, the sun rose upon Jacob. By the way, from a literary perspective, that is beautiful. Because in chapter 28, as Jacob began his exile, the sun was going down, which began a 20-year dark night of the soul for Jacob. And now, as his time of exile is ending, the sun is rising on Jacob again. The sun is rising as he passed Penuel, Moses writes, limping, limping because of his hip. Bruce Walkie calls Jacob's limp the limp of grace. In one sense, this is the strongest that Jacob has ever been. His faith, his humility is larger than ever. His intimacy with God and his love for, for God is deeper than ever. But nevertheless, he walks away from his encounter with God limping. God just, doesn't just restore his hip. He lets Jacob continue on in weakness. Because while faith heals... Faith also cripples, puts a limp in your step so that you remember who is the strong one and who is the weak one. God is determined that we keep that order straight. There are probably things that you have begged God to take away from you. Sometimes in His his grace, He does do that. He takes that thing away, but Sometimes we beg God to take certain things away from us, and He doesn't. And God, in those moments, says that that is the limp of grace, and you're going to live with it. And I'm not going to take it away because I need to remind you that you're weak. Because the way to your heart, the way to your heart is through the divine dislocation of something that makes you strong. I wonder what that might be in your life. I wonder if God has dislocated something in your life that would have made you strong, and now it's gone. And now you're realizing with Jacob that all you can do is hold on to God and rely on Him and Him alone. The Apostle Paul knew something of this, didn't he? God had given him what he called a thorn in the flesh, an affliction, a weakness, and he pleaded with God time and again about this. Paul thought if God would just remove that weakness, that would be sufficient for him. And you remember how God responded. Jesus says in 2 Corinthians 12, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And then then Paul's reaction is amazing. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. 
You ever done that? Have you ever done that? (laughs) I will boast more gladly of my weaknesses. Why, Paul? Are you crazy, Paul? No. He says, the reason I boast is so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul is boasting in the weakness because the weakness is an opportunity to put the glory and the strength of God on display. Because what the world needs to see is not Paul, but Jesus. And and what Paul needs to see is not his own strength and his own ability, but Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I urge you, do not let go and let God. Instead, let go of everything else that you are banking on for ultimate life, peace, security, and satisfaction. And once your hands are empty of those things, then hold fast to God. And even as you hold fast to God, be encouraged that He holds fast to you and His grip is much stronger than yours. And that, brothers and sisters, should be at the bottom of our hope. As King David wrote in Psalm 63, 8, my soul clings to you. That's what I'm asking you all to do. Cling to God. But it doesn't stop there. He says, your right hand upholds me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. And I pray in Jesus' name that we would learn the lesson of Penuel, the lesson that Jacob learned, that we move forward and we prevail and we receive all of the blessings that God has for us in weakness as we rely on His grace through faith. And thank you that as we cling to you, ultimately, at the bottom of it all, Our hope is not even in the strength that we have to cling to you, but our hope is in the fact that your right hand upholds us, as David wrote. Help us, Father. Help us in our weakness. And let us, in our weakness, experience the blessing of seeing your strength and in seeing your glory, and thereby experience the blessing of knowing you more, of seeing you more, of being drawn deeper into you and deeper into the things of God. If being weak gives us more of you, then it's worth it. And I pray that you would help us to actually believe it. In Jesus' name, amen.